Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's medical director. I'm here with our awesome co-hosts, uh, Dr. Sajan Bakta and Dr. Patil Armenian. Hi, everyone. Hello. We have a guest host today, Dr. Jessica Wynn. Hey, everybody. Today, we're going to be talking about stimulant drug-induced chest pain. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of Americans' family. Help is on the way, got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. So, Dr. Nguyen, thank you for being here with us today. Um, can you go ahead and tell us about yourself? Uh, my name is Jess. I'm one of the second-year EM residents over at CRMC. Um, I'm originally from San Jose, California, and I did medical school in New Orleans. Well, welcome, and we're happy to have you here with us. Thanks for having me. You know, we're going to be talking about this stimulant drug-induced chest pain. So for here in the Central Valley, there's a lot of cocaine and methamphetamines. Um, just tell us about the normal physiology of this. Normal chemicals that are circulating in our body called catecholamines, they're dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and serotonin. They naturally exist in our bodies, and they're important for maintaining a regular balance and kind of shifting what our body's priorities are given specific situations. So let's say you're being confronted by a bear. You're going to want to um, direct your blood flow to your heart to um, you know, increase your heart rate and get your blood flow over to your muscles. Um, basically just our fight or flight responses. Great. So these uh, catechols, methamphetamines and cocaine kind of act like that, right? So your natural responses to that run from the bear response. So we're going to talk to our toxicologist, Dr. Armenian. Can you tell us about these substances? So um, there's a lot of substances that fall into this stimulant drug category. The ones that we see the most common are cocaine and methamphetamine, especially here in the Central Valley and in really all rural and suburban parts of the United States west of the Mississippi River. Methamphetamine is the most popular stimulant drug that is abused. And then once you get to east of the Mississippi River, so the East Coast, and in urban areas, cocaine is really the stimulant drug that people like to use the most. So we're going to kind of talk about these two, but just so you know, there's a lot of other stimulant drugs that we come across. For example, MDMA, which is ecstasy or molly. Um, even caffeine is actually a stimulant. Everything has to be you know, used in moderation. So even caffeine, if you use too much of it, um, can cause effects on your heart. And so when you're stimulating your sympathetic nervous system, you're basically stimulating your heart. So let's just really quickly talk in plain English about how these drugs work. And so all of these sympathomimetic drugs, so again, that's your cocaine, your meth, um, they do anything that they can to increase dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin in your body. So they do that by directly stimulating um, those neurotransmitters to be released um, from your neurons. They also cause reuptake inhibition, which means that once those catecholamines are in your neurosynaptic cleft, they're not being taken back up. So they just hang around in there longer so that they act longer. 
And then they also cause um, monoamine oxidase inhibition. So those are the MAO enzymes that then break down these uh, neurotransmitters uh, once they've been done being used. Just to summarize, they make it stay longer. They don't let you resorb it and they increase more of it. Yeah. So it's like a more, more, more kind of situation. And the way that these drugs are different from each other is just the ratios of which catecholamines they're kind of affecting the most. So for example, methamphetamine has a lot of epinephrine and norepinephrine effects. Um, Cocaine also has a lot of dopamine effects. And then MDMA, for example, has a lot more serotonin effects. That's just like minutia, but basically at the end of the day, they cause these stimulant effects to happen in your body and for them to last a long period of time. Cocaine is special because it also causes sodium channel blockade in your heart. What that means is that it's basically slowing down conduction in your heart. So you can get really low blood pressure and be in a shocky state just from that part of cocaine. And fun fact, that's the way cocaine is actually a local anesthetic. So when people in movies, you see them like getting like powdered cocaine and putting it on their gums and they're like, oh, that's the good stuff because they're feeling numb. It's because cocaine is a local anesthetic, just like lidocaine. And in medicine, cocaine was used for many years to stop nosebleeds, to do a lot of things um, pharmacologically. Now we've got away from that, obviously. Yeah, we don't just have cocaine lying around in the hospital anymore. People will just steal it. So Sanjin, what's the prevalence of this? So yeah, the use of these drugs is unfortunately pretty common. Um, According to the CDC, uh, in 2015-2018, over 1.5 million people in the U.S. admitted to using methamphetamine. These are self-reported data, so that may be an underestimation as well. And especially here in the Central Valley, there tends to be a higher incidence of use in men, lower socioeconomic status, and lower educational status. And then cocaine is the second most commonly abused stimulant drug, but is, as Dr. Amin was saying earlier, in other parts of the country, the most commonly abused. Yeah, so today we're talking about the stimulant-induced chest pain. So let's focus on the chest pain, the cardiovascular complications, and how, you know, the cocaine and methamphetamine and even crack cocaine, how those affect our cardiovascular system. So we're going to talk about how often this happened. How often does the coronary ischemic chest discomfort protocol get used here at American Ambulance? So in 2019, American Ambulance used this protocol 4,288 times. That's quite a bit. Now, only um, a little under 1% of the time did they receive Versed because it was assumed to be due to a stimulant use. And in 2020, they've used it a little over 3,000 times. And Versed was only given 22 times so far. So sometimes, though, I think in the field, we don't always know it's due to stimulant use. And other times, um, I think it's we have a very short transport time. So by the time you, 911 calls made, our team is on the scene. They're less than 10 minutes from the hospital. So they might not even get down the protocol far enough to be giving the Versed for the stimulant-induced chest pain. Dr. Wayne, why don't you talk about nationally how many chest pain calls there are? Uh, According to a 2009 paper from the Annals of Emergency Medicine, uh, chest pain was actually the most common presenting complaint uh, for people that use cocaine. And according to the Substance Use and Mental Health Services Administration, which is a subset within the Department of 
Health and Human Services. In 2011, there were about two and a half million ED visits. And within that, there were about 505,000 visits related to cocaine and about 159,000 were related to either amphetamine or methamphetamine use. I just want to break down like how long these things stay active in your body, but methamphetamine has a really long half-life, so sometimes it'll last up to 12 hours. And cocaine has a really short half-life. It might be gone in less than an hour um, from your body. So that actually makes a difference as to what kind of effects we see. So if we break it down, uh, for meth, the acute effects are through its actions on beta receptors, and so it basically uh, makes your heart pump faster and harder, putting a lot of stress on the heart. And because of that, your heart needs more oxygen uh, for it to function. But at the same time, um, because of its effect on alpha receptors, you might get some vasoconstriction. And so that's kind of counterproductive because you want more oxygen circulating um, in your heart rather than less, which is what vasoconstriction does. So when you get a mismatch between oxygen supply and demand, this leads to tissue ischemia, um, and basically you can die from a heart attack because your heart muscle didn't get enough oxygen. In one study done um, at UC Davis in the late 90s, um, they just looked at 171 patients with chest pain and methamphetamine use, And they were able to um, examine 33 of those cases that met their inclusion criteria. And out of those 33, a quarter had diagnosed ACS, which they defined as a Q-wave MI, non-Q-wave MI, or unstable angina, along with uh, labs that were twice the upper limit of normal. So this isn't something that's uncommon. It is definitely something where somebody uses meth and then they have chest pain, you know, a lot of them will have some sort of cardiac abnormality. Now, around here, we know that actually with meth, what we're dealing with a lot of the times is long-term effects as opposed to these acute short-term effects. And the most major long-term effect that we see is dilated cardiomyopathy, heart failure. A lot of us think that that's because methamphetamine has such a long half-life. It's sticking around in your body for so long that it has the opportunity to have enough effect on your heart muscle to thin it out and make it so that it can't really pump like it used to. And so when you have this like thinned out, floppy, big heart, um, it can't pump as well. Um, so you see heart failure and, and we're, you know, accustomed to that with people who are short of breath and having chest pain, swelling in their extremities, JVD, but they also have a really high incidence of arrhythmia. Um, so once your ejection fraction gets really low and um, you have, in essence, severe heart failure, then they have a, a higher risk of sudden cardiac death um, due to arrhythmias. And just for everyone um, listening, just remind people, so ejection fraction is calculated by an echo that is done. So it's an ultrasound in your heart, and they measure how fast that blood can pump out of your heart. So a normal ejection fraction for most of us is probably around 60%, 70%. No one has a 100% pump. No one can really squeeze every bit of blood out in that one beat. So if you're under 20%, that means this big floppy heart with thinned out muscle that's barely squeezing. So if you watch on an ultrasound, it almost looks painful to watch. It just barely squeezes. So those people, you can imagine that muscle is all stretched out, also stretches out the electrical pathways. And so that's why they get all these fatal arrhythmias. Yeah. And then at the same time, they may have higher levels of circulating norepinephrine and um, just their heart is more sensitized to these catecholamines. And so they just get arrhythmias precipitated a lot easier. 
And one of the things that is done is to put an um, an AICD in place, like a, an internal defibrillator, when their heart failure gets that gets severe. But even this, um, a lot of times, they don't make it. You know, very many years past that because they already have such severe heart disease. So I think if, if for the medics listening, if you see a young person, you know, 20s, maybe early 30s, who has an AICD in place, like your kind of heckle should go up. You just say like, oh, they have cardiomyopathy at some point. You don't always don't get, um, and AICDs kind of look like pacemakers. You can't really tell the difference. You just see them under the skin. But if you ask the patient, they can tell you like, yeah, to shock me, not to pace them. So if you got an EKG in them, you'd see a normal EKG, not the pacer spikes like you would from a pacer, but it just sits there. And the idea is that it's set that if they go into a V-fib or a VTAC, that it would give them an internal defibrillation. Exactly. And this is just another reason to bring these young patients into the hospital. They can be evaluated by the cardiologists in the hospital. A lot of times they don't leave the hospital, even if they can't have a defibrillator placed, they have what we call a life vest, which is an external device that monitors your heart and can provide a life-saving shock. These are things that really can save a life and make a difference. So it really makes sense to transport all these patients to the hospital, even if they're young and have chest pain and may not have the classic risk factors for um, an ischemic event if they do have any cardiomyopathy, um, whether it's substance-induced or not, these are you know really good reasons to bring them into the hospital and have a thorough evaluation. Jess, why don't you tell us about um, that study about sudden cardiac death in known cardiomyopathy? Like, how often is this happening? Uh, so there was a 1999 paper in uh, clinical cardiology, and they reviewed data for um, quite a number of years, 1985 to 1999. Um, and at that time, the two-year survival was less than 50%. And most of it was uh, because they have progressive heart failure. But there was a large proportion of patients that died um, with sudden cardiac death, and mostly from ventricular arrhythmias. A very small percent was from a bradyarrhythmia. And the majority of the reviewed patients had evidence of ectopic ventricular beats on monitoring when they're walking around, just kind of living their daily lives. And... Um, in patients with both ischemic and non-ischemic causes for dilated cardiomyopathy, um, they, like Dr. Armenian mentioned, they have higher levels of circulating norepinephrine, which can precipitate a fetal arrhythmia. Yeah, so I think the take-home point is methamphetamine is very bad for our hearts, and uh, your fatal arrhythmia can get very high on the on the chronic side. So let's turn to cocaine. What about that? The acute effects of cocaine are where we see most of the problems from cocaine. And so this is primarily due to vasoconstriction. So cocaine is a much more potent vasoconstrictor of your coronary arteries. And then, um, as we know, like this will increase your perfusion mismatch. And so you don't get the heart, the oxygen that it so desperately needs when it's working so hard. And then interestingly, um, it causes inflammation in your inner lining of your blood vessels. And so that inflammation makes it so that blood clots can form more easily in your blood vessels, thereby blocking them and causing heart attacks. And then it also increases platelet aggregation. So your platelets will clump up even more of a propensity to make clots in your coronary arteries, also causing heart attacks. So cocaine really is special because it can just cause a heart attack in the acute setting um, with blockages that need to be opened up. 
And one other special thing about cocaine, um, like I mentioned before, is that it does block sodium channels in the heart. And what that means is that it slows down conduction. And just that slowing down of con- conduction can cause extra toxicity in the heart and cause hypotension. So these are people that will look like they're in shock. And then we have long-term effects. Cocaine is really its own coronary artery disease risk factor. So I know we always think about coronary artery disease risk factors as hypertension, hyperlipidemia, uh, diabetes. Smoking. Smoking, you know, all the things that we're used to asking patients. But chronic cocaine use is its own coronary artery disease risk factor. And so if somebody chronically uses cocaine and they're complaining of chest pain, it really does have to be taken seriously. They have, um, in one paper in 2006 in the Journal of American College of Cardiology, um, cocaine users that had ST elevation MIs, they were young, they had less risk factors, but they had higher incidence of multivessel disease and a higher number of lesions in their coronary artery disease than the rest of the regular non-cocaine people that had MIs requiring So it seems like cocaine is bad because it's causing the plaques, it's causing more spasm, and it's depositing more like platelet aggregation on your vessels. So it's like another three-way Cocaine's attack. like the perfect cardiac poison, really. It's like the perfect poison for your heart because it's like it can acutely cause a heart attack and then long-term can cause a heart attack. So let's jump to long-term effects. I know you kind of hinted at some of the, the long-term things, but how similar is it to methamphetamine? Uh, so similarly to long-term methamphetamine use, patients can develop a dilated cardiomyopathy, and they also develop um, fat actually within the cardiac tissue, which obviously is not going to help it pump as effectively as it would otherwise. There's a 1999 article in Circulation. These researchers reviewed charts for about 4,000 patients from various um, centers across the states. And according to their analysis, the risk of heart attacks within the first hour of cocaine use was actually increased almost 24 times as compared to the regular population. These patients were more habitual users, long-term users. So it's kind of hard to get an idea of what the increased risk would be for your occasional or rare users. Uh, There was a more recent paper in 2018 in drug and alcohol dependence that reviewed all inpatient hospital data in California from 1990 to 2005. Um, And the way that they did it, they looked at the coding related to the hospital admission, and then they looked at methamphetamine without other drug or alcohol use, cocaine without drug or other alcohol use, and then appendicitis, which they use as a kind of general way of um, relating it back to the general population. They compared the increased risk of um, developing um, an acute MI or ACS compared to the regular population. uh, Methamphetamine users were 1.4 times as likely to develop um, ACS. And for cocaine users, it was 1.25 increased risk. Um, And they did an age analysis overall, and they saw that the general trends were true. So methamphetamine users and cocaine users were higher risk of developing heart disease or ACS than a general population. But it was more profound, those effects, in the younger age groups. I think it's important to notice that when you get called to a – even when I walk in a room in red zone and the person's 25, it's like, oh, this guy's 25. Does he really have an MI? But it's true that he's 25 and can have an MI because of these high-risk behaviors. So it's equivalent to that 25-year-old being a diabetic and a smoker. But now they're not a diabetic and a smoker, but they are a cocaine or meth user. And that has to really kind of key us in that even though they're young and look healthy, their poor coronaries may not be healthy. 
And just to like add on to that, I remember when we were in training a long time ago, um, we were kind of taught that cocaine-induced chest pain is not important and it's not a real thing because the thought was all it does is cause vasoconstriction and then they're better. And now we know that that is absolutely not the case and that it is a big deal. Right. It causes vasoconstriction plus it's, it's damaging those cells that are in line, those vessels. And so we know they're getting plaques put in their coronary arteries. And so... It's like that commercial that you see the young lady walking and she falls down because she has high cholesterol. It's like this is the young guy dancing at a rave and he falls down because he has the big MI. Um, let's jump to the protocol. So they would be on the coronary ischemic uh, discomfort protocol. Sajin, you want to walk us through that? Sure. So starting as we do for all our protocols, we're going to do a quick assessment of our ABCs. We're going to you know make sure their airway is secure, going to put them on some oxygen then we start doing our chest pain specific therapies. So aspirin, nitroglycerin, IV access, and an EKG. Right after that, in our American Ambulance Protocol, we have nitropaste. And then the next consideration is midazolam, which would be a treatment for ischemic chest discomfort that is associated with sympathomimetic abuse. We have specified in our protocol that means cocaine, crack, amphetamine, crank. And this dose can be repeated, and that's a four milligram slow IV push. And after that, we can give fentanyl for pain control. And of course, if you have any other complications, you can contact your base hospital and your base hospital physician for more orders. Um, But it is written into our ischemic chest pain protocol to think about these things. And if there's a strong suspicion, our medics are able to treat that. Right. And that's the same thing we're going to do in the emergency department. So in the ED evaluation, you know, if it's chest pain due to uh, sympathomimetic, if it's due to methamphetamine or cocaine, we are going to go ahead and give them Versed ourselves, right? We're going to give them a Dazolam to kind of help reduce that heart rate, reduce that blood pressure, hopefully reduce the spasm that's going on in the heart itself. So just to clarify some of the slang words used for these drugs, crack is a form of cocaine. Uh, Crank is a really old slang word for methamphetamine, but most of our uh, population just calls it meth or cristal. Cristal is uh, is what a lot of our um, Spanish-speaking uh, patients call it. So if you hear that, that's meth. And if someone says they did a speedball, um, if you're anywhere other than Fresno, that's probably going to be a cocaine and heroin combo. In Fresno, uh, it's going to be a meth and heroin combo. All right, Dr. Wynn, go through for us on the other causes of chest pain that just we have to keep in the back of our minds. So we've all been focusing on MIs. So um, there are other things in uh, the chest besides the heart, obviously. So there are the big blood blood vessels that come off of the heart. So a major um, scary cause of chest pain is aortic dissection. So some risk factors for that um, are smokers, those that have connective tissue disease, meaning that the um, tissues within their blood vessels and sometimes their skin, et cetera, just very kind of soft and pliable, just kind of weaker and more susceptible to stress. And um, something that you can see often is that they have very, very high blood pressure. There was a 2002 paper review charts from 1981 to 2001 from SF General Hospital They found about 38 encounters with the um, medical-coded aortic dissection. And in about 14 of those um, patients, they had self-reported cocaine use within the first 24 hours prior to the um, symptom onset. And of those 14, uh, nine of those had a positive drug screen for cocaine. 
Um, a couple of other things, you know, there are lungs in the in the chest as well. So um, a big pulmonary embolism, so a big clot in uh, the blood vessels of the lungs can also be a cause of chest pain. So some risk factors for that would be recent surgery or immobilization or travel, uh, steroid use, history of blood clots in the legs or the lungs. And the symptoms that you would ask about would be things like coughing up blood, leg swelling that's more prominent in one, um, and then some signs when you evaluate them would be a low oxygen saturation and high heart rate, and then just generally um, your clinical suspicion for that. Um, some other lung pathology, so things like infection, like a pneumonia, can cause irritation of the tissue and cause pain. With a systemic infection, so infection that was kind of in one part of the body spreading to the blood uh, can cause things like tachycardia, but normally you'd see a normal to low blood pressure. And then um, on the outermost part of the chest, you have the muscles, the bones, and the skin. So things like trauma, whether they just got hit in the chest with something like a bat or got in a bad car accident or they got stabbed or shot, more obvious reasons for uh, chest pain. Uh, but they can have broken ribs and um, basically a bruising of the heart muscle itself causing pain. Um, and then it's things like skin. So shingles is um, something that... I kind of think about kind of on the later end um, if they're having chest pain because it basically is your chicken pox virus coming back out to play, irritating the skin. And you may not have any anything that looks like a rash on the skin at first, but they start to have pain and it's very localized along a specific distribution of that nerve. So moving on to the management of these patients who have chest pain, of course, you're going to be treating them for acute coronary syndrome, giving them nitrates, giving them aspirin. Um, we're putting some oxygen on them. Again, if we are suspecting a substance-induced or a stimulant-induced chest pain, we have in our protocol to give benzodiazepines, give them midazolam. And in the emergency department, these patients who come in with very high blood pressures, um, in the past, we had been scared to give them beta blockers. The thought was that cocaine especially causes a lot of alpha effect and that alpha constricts our blood vessels and blocking the beta receptors would cause the alpha receptors to be even more stimulated. Um, that hasn't borne out in a lot of the literature. Um, so our management strategy is going to be giving them nitrates, aspirin, oxygen, benzodiazepines, and beta blockers if we really need to. All right, let's jump to our take-home points. Um, what do we want everyone to remember if they remember just a few things from listening to this episode? We'll start with Dr. Armenian. Firstly, I would say ask people with chest pain if they have used any of these drugs. I think getting your history is going to be the thing that's going to guide you into the correct part of your protocol. Dr. Wynn. Don't be afraid to use um, the benzos in your protocol, especially if they're hypertensive and if they're kind of giving you the sense that they um, are have used stimulants recently. Dr. Bakta. I just want to say that these patients can be very young and they may not look sick, but their hearts are very sick. So take all these patients really seriously. Yes, and my take home point today is that there are short term and long term uses. And so sometimes patients have like acute on chronic, right? They could be a chronic meth user and then start having chest pain. So basically respect the chest pain patients who have uh, these type of habits. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. 
If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at AmericanAmbulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at AmericanAmbulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.